Well, we are here in this, this series continuing to look at this, I, this faith in a new world. And you know, last week, if you were, if you were joining with us last week, then you, know, you, you saw that, that this hope against hope, this miracle had occurred, that here are these people that had been, that had just you know, virtually been wiped out and they had been, you know, some of them had been just slaughtered. Others had been taken into exile. And now 70 years later, 70 years later, just think about that. We get impatient when things don't happen in a few months. 70 years. Those who remembered, you know, what it was like to be in Jerusalem, you know, they were kids, probably. Others had just heard about it. You know, what's, what is the reality? I, I think it would have been like if we all somehow were able to colonize the moon and we were right now having our worship service on the moon. It, we would think, that's crazy. And here they were, they were back in this place. And, and the story we, we saw last week, it's like they're, they're celebrating. They're having this incredible victory. And by the way, um, you know, thank you, John, by the way, for leading us in worship this morning, and the whole worship team and the AV team and everybody who, who makes this happen. But let me just tell you something. When, when, the, when the Jewish people would celebrate, it didn't sound like this. You know, we somehow think like that they sang the same songs we sang. They just maybe melody, different language. When it says make a joyful noise, it sounded like a joyful noise. When it said shout, they were shouting. You know, this whole system of music that we use hadn't even been invented yet. And they're celebrating. It's huge, so much so that we even saw said some of the older people were weeping. It's such a powerful moment. And if, you know, if that was the end of it, we would think, what a great story. What a great story. These exiles make it back. They, they reinstitute this worship in this area, and then they, they build the foundation. We know what's going to happen now. They're going to live happily ever after. So many fairy tales that we heard when we were kids, that's what they ended with, right? And they lived happily ever after. Nowadays, because we like to deconstruct even our fairy tales, you know, there's usually the, the follow-up story. You know, was Cinderella and Prince Charming, was their marriage really happily ever after? Did they have struggles, you know? Well, it wasn't true, you know, for these people for sure. In fact, it's rarely true, this happily ever after. And what we're going to read about today is what happens almost immediately after that. Almost immediately. Almost immediately, they're going to be, they're going to be approached by people who oppose them, but their first strategy is not to oppose them directly. And it kind of reminded me, um, you know, Eric and I, sometimes when we go running, we're talking, and he told me about this, this um, series on uh, HBO, and it's, a, it's about John Adams. Um, it's like most historical series, they're not exactly correct, but it's, it's pretty good, it's pretty decent. But, you know, one of the things that, that we sometimes think is, is we think like, like the, you know, presidential elections we have now, where we think like, when did they get so ugly? When did they get so like, you know, people lying about each other, combative, all this other stuff? They were always that way. They've always been that way. In fact, one of the biggest, um, you know, one of the biggest differences in how we, you know, deal with the whole president thing 
today as opposed to back then, was back then, at least for the first three, four, five, six presidents, I don't know how long this tradition lasted, it might have lasted longer, but if you could never act like you wanted to be president, you know, you had to like, like turn, turn everybody down at least the first couple times. You know, it was just something, I guess, that was expected. But the, the, the vicious personal attacks on each other, they were always there. In fact, you know, we have, you know, we have two of the founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And if John Adams and Thomas Jefferson lived, I mean, if they were around today, having the same kind of relationship today, we have a word for them that they didn't have back then. Just to show you how much um, the world's improved, we have this word, and you might have heard this word before. It's called frenemy. Frenemy. You know, frenemy is someone who, you know, appears to be your friend, but they're really your enemy. Well, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were classic frenemies. You know, they, they worked together. They actually would, would respected one another in so many different ways, but they were on opposite sides of, of just kind of like what the United States should be in terms of, you know, things like, um, you know, should the government be more centralized? Should, it, should there be more rights among the states? And, you know, when they ran against each other for president, it was particularly vicious. Now, they were, again, they didn't do it themselves. They had people do it for them. But Thomas Jefferson's side started a rumor. And the rumor was that John Adams was trying to make a treaty with the French and establish the monarchy. None of it was true. But, you know, if you're within just a few years of the Revolutionary War, where you've just thrown off, you know, the, the rule of the king of Britain? Why, why would you vote for a guy that's just trying to reestablish a monarchy here? Frenemy. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are frenemies with God. There's a lot of people that are frenemies with God. They act like they want to be friends with God, but they only want to be friends with God if God changes who he is. God needs to compromise a little. He needs to, you know, give a little. If he really wants this friendship to work, it's got to be a give and take, right? And there's a lot of people that are perfectly willing to believe in God if only God would compromise more who he is. In other words, they really don't like God. They really want to remain an enemy of God. But they want to be friends with a God who's, who's compromised, who's shifted, who you know, looks the other way, who isn't so serious and so crazy about that, that sin stuff. You know, and it's, it's funny, you know, we were actually talking a little bit about this in our, in our Sunday school today, that, you know, it's, people often want to, um, you know, want to, like, connect with someone else. They want to build a relationship. But really, the basis of the relationship is that other person changing, that other person compromising who they are. And it's not said that way. It's often said this way. You should just accept me for who I am. I used to think that was, that was a good thing, that was noble, that we should love people for who they are. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that there's a lot of stuff about us that's not lovable. And if I'm a Christian, and I understand what it means to be a Christian, I understand there's a lot of stuff about me that's not lovable. There are things about me that I, I, I would be like appalled if my wife loved that about me. I would, I would want her to, to see in me that unrighteousness and that sin and, and, and hate it. 
But we, we get caught up in this world of, oh, you should just accept me for who I am. Well, yeah, but don't ask me to love everything you are. I can love you, but there are things about you, just, just what we want God to do, we want Christ to do in us, is to change those things. But it's so much easier to say, I'm going to be me, and I'm not going to change. You change. And so there's a lot of people who are like that, and they're not new. This isn't a new thing. This isn't like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, you know, that's those postmoderns. You know, some of you went to the, um, the Summit Worldview Conference this weekend, so you now have some more lingo, you know. But it's not like, oh, that's those postmoderns, or, you know, that's that, that, you know, that Marxist worldview. That's what that is. It's like, no. What we're going to find is, this goes all the way back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and even before that. So here we are, chapter 3, it's a big moment, celebration, foundation has been established of the temple. And by the way, I want you to think about that. This took incredible faith. If you were going to go back to a city that had been destroyed, and you weren't going to consult God on what you should do, what would you assume God wants you to do? Well, you would assume God wants you to do the reasonable thing. And when you go back to a land where there's people all around that are, you know, your enemies or you don't know who they are, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to protect yourself. Why aren't they, why are they wasting their time on a foundation? Why aren't they focusing on rebuilding the walls? Why not build the walls of the city? Makes sense, right? This is what God would want us to do. Build the walls of the city, and then after we have secured the place, now we'll get to that temple thing. It's this, this ultimate act of faith. No walls, no real army to speak of to protect themselves, and they build the foundation. So they have this great moment, they have this celebration. And of course, people that were living in the area noticed. And so chapter four starts this way, it says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of es Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Actually sounds pretty cool. You know, if we decided to plant a church somewhere, let's say we wanted to you know, go to another island or another part of the island and plant a church, and as soon as we got there, like a bunch of other people from the community, community leaders, you know, came to one of our meetings and said, hey, you know, we, we want to join with you. We would think, this is awesome. Step one, built this foundation. Step two, people are coming in. They, they want to be a part of this. That sounds good. Well, it's not good. And we're going to find out how not good it is. But the leaders of these exiles, they understood it's not good. And so the thing that we, that we want to see here in this text is that the faithful, you have to be careful about people who want to be their friends but do not want to be faithful. There are a lot of people that, that like some of the benefits of, of, a, of a church in their community. They like the fact that, you know, that even if there's, you know, Christians in their neighborhood, they like it. 
But they don't like all of it. And you, you see these people, they're, they're coming and it sounds really good. We worship your God as you do. Oh, really? Here's the question. And the text is not like beating us over the head with this. It's just telling us this and you're supposed to know this. But the question is this. If they were so faithful at worshiping God for these 70 years, why did the Jewish people have to reestablish worship? Why did they? Well, because whatever they were doing, it wasn't worship of God. Now, they might have thought it was worship of God, but it wasn't. And whatever they were doing, they did not understand that whatever they were doing was very different from what the Jewish people were doing. Notice it doesn't say the Jewish people had one sacrifice one night and then the next day the adversaries came. No, in, in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, they're very careful. It's very careful. The author is very careful to say, like, they didn't just do one sacrifice. They did it, like, all day. They reestablished the entire sacrificial system. And if these people were, were even there to hear, like, the celebration, they, they would have known this isn't the same thing. They thought it, you know, they were trying to pass it off as the same thing. Maybe even some of them thought it was the same thing, but they couldn't see the difference. See, that's kind of the, the world that we live in now. It's the society we live in now. The big fancy word is, is pluralism. And and pluralism kind of lives off this, this really wrong understanding. And, and, and the, the, what they live off of is, is this phrase that, that all faiths are essentially the same. They're all essentially the same. They're all talking about love. They're all talking about, you know, they may have different God or gods or different things to believe in, but they're all talking about faith. And it's all talking about us becoming better people, working to become better people. And if they come to you and say, join us or we want to join you, but we want to join you because we're worshiping the same God you are. it sounds really tempting. Because a lot of these people are more or less good people. At least they want to be, at least they want to try. But you see, they want to be faithful to whatever conception of God they have. They don't want to be faithful to the God. On Monday nights, we've been going over, you know, some of our basic beliefs, and recently we've been talking about the Trinity. And by the way, as an advertisement for you, in March, our Waterhouse Lecture Series is going to be on the Trinity, Doctrine of the Trinity. I can't, you know, emphasize enough to you how important it is for us to, to, to develop our understanding of the God who is Trinity. But that whole pluralism argument that we're all essentially the same blows up when we think about who God is. The God we read in the Bible is the God who is Trinity. He's the God who is Trinity. He's one God, but He is the God who is Trinity. There is no other, there is no other belief system that even comes close to understanding God this way. In fact, there are other monotheistic belief systems that believe that if you believe in the Trinity, then you are a blasphemer. How do you get along 
with somebody who says, your fundamental belief of who God is, is blaspheme. Are we really all the same? The answer is no. In fact, we've talked about this before, that that Christianity, what sets Christianity apart is Christianity is the only faith that I know that says what God requires of you is impossible. You cannot do it, and yet he requires it of you. It's only one. All the rest of them say, you know, you, you, you do the right things. You follow the right procedures. You accumulate enough good stuff. God's going to accept you. You can do it. You know, that sounds so good. That sounds like, you know, like religion wrapped up in motivational speaker, you know, and it's something that we can listen to and go, oh yeah, I can do it, we can do it. Christianity lays out this high standard. It's the one that, you know, I've told you, you know, several times before, to love everyone perfectly all the time. That's the impossible standard. To love even your enemies perfectly all the time while simultaneously loving all your friends perfectly all the time. It's an impossible standard. Christianity admits that up front. We cannot just say other people who are faithful that are, you know, all working together, loving, that, that it's all the same. It's not the same. Because we realize it is only possible if Jesus Christ does something to us before we attempt to do anything. We have to be changed. You see, the, all of the belief systems that say that human beings are essentially good, maybe they're not educated, or they just need to be educated. Maybe they're, they, were, they grew up in tough situations or they're impoverished. And, you know, we just need to, you know, make sure they have material things. All of the belief systems that say that, say that if we just change the environment, if we just you know, teach people that the goodness inside of them will be released. Christianity stands alone and says, no. If someone is a poor sinner and you give them money, you know what they're going to become? A rich sinner. If someone's an uneducated sinner and you educate them, you know what they're going to become? an educated sinner. The problem hasn't been dealt with. Christianity tells us, the Bible tells us again and again, that, we, that yes, we were made good. God created human beings in His image, and He called it very good. But ever since the fall, we are not essentially good. We are essentially selfish. We're essentially evil. We essentially look out for ourselves or our own kind. That's who we are. We are essentially sinful. That has to change. How do you lump that together with views that are the opposite? You can't. In fact, I happen to think that these adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, these adversaries of God, that they were probably very proud of themselves because where did, where did they come from? Well, they're a combination of different people. You know, before Persia, before Babylon, the major world power, well, not world power, but this area's power was Assyria. And what Assyria would do is if they came in and, and conquered you and they really didn't like you, they would like just take all your people and send them to other places. 
And the idea was if they can displace people from their homes, they're going to be less likely to rebel. But Assyria was also smart. The worst thing they could have in their empire was big pukas without people. Because what's going to happen is if those areas are, are good areas, like good for growing crops or um, you know, strategic for trade and military purposes, people are going to move in. In fact, another strong kingdom could just move in. So what would they do? They would take people that they had conquered from other parts and they would bring them to this area. So you have people from, that had been displaced. We don't even know where they're all from. But they had been displaced by Assyrians from their places, their area and brought to this area. There were, there were probably some, some Israelites, even though Assyria scattered the, the, the ten tribes, I'm sure a few were able to kind of make their way back. So they're there. And there had always been neighboring groups. You know, the, the people of Israel never conquer all the, all the people in the area. There's always neighboring groups, and, and they probably had come in. And these adversaries probably prided themselves on the fact that they were so inclusive, that they had been able to kind of meld together all these different cultures. And they probably thought, like, look, we've taken people from all over the, you know, the, this, this area for and have been here, some of them have been here for over a over hundred years. And we've been able to bring everybody together and all their different beliefs about gods and gods, we've been able to get them all to get along. And from a purely human standpoint, you go, what's wrong with that? That's, that's pretty good. What they've done is this thing that, that Paul will write about in Colossians, and really it's one of the big things that Ezra and Nehemiah are warning about. It's this big fancy word called syncretism. Syncretism. I'll give you just kind of a, like a bare bones, easy definition of syncretism. Syncretism is when you want to take the truth of who God is and change it to fit already held beliefs, practices, you know, whatever it is, rituals, philosophies, ethics. So you want to take something you already believe, something you already do, and you want to make, you want to change the truth of who God is, the truth of what God is saying to us. You want to, you want to change it to fit already held beliefs. That's syncretism. And in case I haven't been clear, it's not good, okay? It's, 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 it's not the same. Syncretism isn't the same as saying, for example, you know, you guys are all sitting here in a, in a worship service very differently from how the first century worshiped. That's not syncretism. You know, there are certain changes we can make to what we do that aren't affecting the, the truth of, of who God is and what he's revealed to us. So we can change a lot of things. We can you know, wear different clothes. We can you know, speak different languages, um, sing different songs. Those, that's not syncretism. Syncretism is when you actually modify the truth of who God is. And I think these adversaries were very proud of themselves and they probably were saying like, um, you know what? We've been able to fit everybody else in. What's one more God? What's one more group of people? So they might have even gone up there just so confident that, you know, that these people would just would just accept them.
but we're going to read in verse 3 they didn't. It says Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in, a, in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see, immediately we know why Ezra called these adversaries. Immediately. Because we see that they were not interested in worshiping your God the way you do. They wanted syncretism. Again, the faithful, we must be on constant guard against syncretism. Even today, how much of what you believe is actually what the Bible teaches? And how much of what you believe is something else that's come in from society, from culture, different influences? You know, we've talked about the word freedom and how so many politicians and so many uh, other people, you know, especially in the United States, they love to use the word freedom. They love to quote from Galatians about freedom. But do they understand freedom the way that the Bible is using the word freedom? Do you understand freedom? When the, when the Bible says you've been set free, do you know what that means? If you don't, or if you think you know what it means, but you don't really know what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about freedom, what's going to happen? Well, it's what I tell you guys when we study context. When we're trying to understand context, if you don't study context, you will pour in your own context. And people who don't want to take the time to understand what the Bible means by freedom, you know what they're going to do? They're going to pour their own meaning in to freedom. And freedom basically becomes, you know, independent, individualized freedom to do what I want. Freedom to act. And, it's, and we... we we don't think of it as even as something that's given to us. We think of it as a right. That's not how the Bible defines freedom. Even fundamental terms like who is God? Who is Jesus? What is salvation? What is faith? Do you know what the Bible actually teaches about these things? And do you know where your understanding has perhaps been influenced by your culture, by your philosophies, by your own understanding? I went to seminary to do one thing, but God had other reasons for having me in seminary. You know, I went to seminary because um, I believed that I, I, you know, that I wanted to be a Bible teacher. And I went to seminary to, you know, to learn biblical languages. So I wanted to learn Greek and Hebrew. And then I wanted to also learn how to study the Bible properly. That's the main thing. That's, the right, that's why I went to seminary. I didn't go to seminary to you know, waste my time with stuff like theology. I thought you know, theology was just dumb and a waste of time. You know, I, I didn't go there to... to you know, think about, you know, my own faith and my own understanding. I just went to get some skills. But one of the great things that God did to me in seminary, besides waking me up and helping me to understand the importance of theology, the other thing He, he, he helped me do is He helped me understand what it really meant 
to study God's Word. And He gave me opportunity to study God's Word with fresh eyes and a fresh mind. You see, there's a lot of people who are afraid of that because they're afraid that all these truths they've held on to for all these years, they're going to have to let go of. Well, let me just tell you something. And I came to this conclusion somewhere early in my seminary um, life. And by the way, when I went to seminary, I was in my 30s already. So I had spent a lot of time already in ministry and studying the Bible. But one of the things I realized is, do I want to live the rest of my life understanding the Bible incorrectly? Do I want to live the rest of my life with something less than truth? Why should I be afraid? Why should I be afraid? And the second thing is, was this. If something I held on to that I felt was so important, so true, so essential, couldn't stand up to my study of Scripture, was even my faith in that real? How weak I must be if, how weak my faith must be if I cannot study God's Word and my faith is not stronger. That just changed everything. This Bible that I had read and studied and preached from and taught from for my, almost my entire life suddenly was, was, a, was a new book to me. Really, the core essentials of, of the faith, they never changed. But so much more came alive. And I knew that if I kept doing this, I had, and I'm not going to tell you it's 100%, 100% foolproof, but I had the guard against syncretism. The guard against syncretism is the right, proper understanding of God's Word. Keeping God's Word as the authority, but also studying it, trying to understand it. And so there's been some fundamental beliefs I've had, not about Christianity, but fundamental beliefs about what I've thought is important in life and in the world. And, and, and by studying God's Word, I prevented myself from syncretizing my, my, my faith by my already held beliefs. You see, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the other leaders, they recognize this. They recognize that these people are not interested in doing what they've done. See, we could go back and say like, you know, what could these adversaries have said if they weren't really adversaries? They could have come and they could have said, look, we know that whatever you're doing is not what we're doing. But we want to understand. We want to worship God the way you're worshiping God. It's a different story. I don't think they would be described as adversaries. But that's not what they wanted. The, this text, you know, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to kind of skip through it. But what's going to follow is actually, it's out of order in history. What the author Ezra is, of, of Ezra is doing is he's introducing this thing that happens right at the beginning when the foundation has been established. But then he's going to jump ahead several decades. And he's going to write about an event that happened several decades later. And he's doing it not because he's confused. He's doing it because he's trying to show like the real uh, impact and intent of these people. And so he's going to say in the reign of another king. So remember, Cyrus is king. And now it's in the reign of another king. 
Ahasuerus. And it says, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then if you jump down to verse 11, it actually has the letter. It says, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it's a very interesting phrase. It's where we get the word salary, by the way. Um, the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of records of your father. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Pretty harsh letter. But the truth is, they're not lying. They're not lying. Maybe a little bit premature, maybe exaggerating, but they're not lying. See, the Persians thought of themselves as kind of a continuation of Babylon. But they didn't necessarily have access to all the historical records or they didn't necessarily check them. And so this is about a hundred something years after the fall of Jerusalem. And that's why they're saying, go look in the books, go look in the history books, look in the records. And what are they gonna find? they're going to find what we have in our Bibles. What, what's, what's happening in the Bibles, in, the, in our Bible? Well, in Chronicles and in Kings, what do we have? We have the record of, of the Jewish people continually revolting against the Babylonians. And the Babylonians eventually coming in and wiping everybody out. They're not lying. And sure enough, when this king goes back and looks at their records, he sees that they're not lying. And so he, he stops the building of the wall. So listen, this is the whole, the whole thing. This is our letter written much later. But it's to illustrate kind of the heart of these earlier opponents. And and it's talking about the building of the walls. And it's not talking about the building of the temple. The temple had actually been completed by this time. But the, the, what's happening is, is that the people in that area, they're not worried about the threat that, that the Jewish people might be to the king of Persia. Because in reality, there's no threat. If, even if they were able to lead a revolt, they would just, king of Persia could come in and wipe them out all over again. No, they're more worried about their interest. They live in that area. They've seen this temple come up. You know, they saw the foundation. You know, the, 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 the building of the temple gets delayed for about, about 15 to 20 years. And then the temple is completed, and then that's it. And that's another story about you know, the problem with why they didn't get busy about building the walls. But that's it. And I guess the adversaries could kind of live with that. They weren't happy. They weren't happy that, that these, these Jewish people had come back and that they were you know, doing all these things and they weren't allowing them to just kind of all be kind of this one big happy pile of, you know, religions and cultures weren't happy, but
But when they start building the walls, they realize this is different. So the people, the, the Jewish people, God's people are being faithful and now they're being opposed even more so. Understand that this again, it's a parallel that we see in the New Testament. That as God blesses the faithful, as the faithful live in a faithful way, the world will oppose them. And there's a reason for it. See, as long as Christianity is this nice thing that, you know, that builds hospitals and, and you know, takes care of poor people, the world's cool with Christianity. But when Christianity starts to show that there's another way to live, that there's another way to relate to one another, and that this way is against the dominant way the world thinks about how we should live, the world is threatened, and it's not because they're wrong. They're right. You see, Jesus didn't come to destroy the world by, by bringing angels or armies or even you know, us rising up as some army to, to go out and conquer. No, he was, he was interested in the battle that takes place at the fundamental level of why the world does what it does and why Jesus and the people of his kingdom do what they do. And both are threats to each other. Jesus says it this way in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world and the world would love you as its own, um, the, I'm sorry, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Yeah, Jesus is talking in this in this context of, you know, first century, he's still here, but this is something that's still true today. The more we live faithfully as Christians, the more the world is going to hate. But understand, just because the world hates you, it doesn't mean it's because you're being a Christian. I just want you to keep that clear. You could have a lot of other reasons the world hates you. You could be a jerk could be incompetent, you know. You yourself could be full of hate. But make no mistake, when the faithful live faithfully, the more that they, they live as Christians, the world will hate them. You might go like, but, but you know, I'm not building a temple. You know, they're building a temple. They're building walls. I'm not doing that. If you're not building a temple and you're not building walls, you're not a Christian. You are the temple. You are involved in the building of the temple who is you. God dwells in you. You are building a temple. You are building walls. And you're not building walls in the sense of, of you know, trying, to, trying to, like, to keep people out. But you are drawing lines. You are saying, this is who I am in Christ. This is truth. I will stand here no matter where you go, world. No matter what you do. You're building walls. If we're believers in Christ, this is what's happening. You see, the more you live faithfully, the more you live in the way that Christ would have us live, you take away the excuses everybody else has. 
You take away the excuses from other Christians. You take away the excuses from the world, from, from people who go, I, I couldn't do that. When you, ordinary you, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and ordinary you is, is loving people in a supernatural way, people can no longer say, I cannot. If you came out of your mother's womb, the perfect holy Christian, okay, everybody would have the excuse of saying, you were always that way. But if you've been building a temple ever since that moment of faith in Jesus Christ, you've been building a temple, guess what? You're taking away the world's excuses. You're confronting them on what matters most. The last thing we see here is that the faithful are to remain faithful in every situation. It's, it's hard for these Jewish people. I'm sure they expected the temple to be built a lot faster and the walls to go up and they didn't expect all this opposition. They didn't expect that you know when King Cyrus died that the following kings wouldn't honor what King Cyrus said. There were so many things they didn't expect because it had started out so well. But we should know it shouldn't be a shock when things don't turn out quite as smooth, quite as nice as, as we think they should. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you firmly believe. Everything comes together. We're disciples. We're a community. We learn from those who who, who study God's Word. We study God's Word. We pass that down generation to generation. But we stand firm in every situation. That's what the people do in this story. They don't all get it right. Some fall away. But what they all do is they remain faithful to the covenant. It's our job. It's our task to do the same in this world. Let's pray.